Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses, uh, part of verses 1 and 2 together this morning. So last week as we kind of looked at an introductory uh, lesson of 1 Peter, I told you that I thought the purpose of the book is to encourage Christian pilgrims to live godly lives in the midst of suffering by fixing their hope on Christ and the glory to come. Kind of a long statement. But that, uh, to me, kind of summarizes the overall purpose of the book. So what we're going to do, I'd like to read for you again verse 1 and 2. And we're going to look uh, primarily at how Peter describes his readers. So let me begin reading from the inspired Word of God. I read from the New American Standard Bible. But please uh, give careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. May God bless the reading of His Word. So, within the book of 1 Peter, Peter is going to describe how we're to live as pilgrims, aliens, exiles in this world. How we're to bear up under suffering from a world that hates God and hates us. But before he begins to exhort us into how we're to live as pilgrims, we first must understand who we are in Christ Jesus. Because when you understand who we are, then it better equips you to live out the life that we're supposed to live for the honor of of God. This is why when you um, look at verse 1 and you begin reading it, the translations differ. But notice at the end of verse 1, he says they are chosen. He's described them as aliens in verse 1. And that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So they're chosen. Now in the Greek text, the word chosen is the first descriptive word that he gives of his readers. They are actually elect exiles. In the Greek, that's the way it reads. So chosen has the preeminence. It's the very first word that Peter is using to describe his readers. They are the elect They're elect aliens or elect exiles. Now, the NIV and the ESV translations preserve it that way. Some of the others, like mine, separate chosen or elect from aliens. But I just want to point out that in the Greek, that Peter's first description is that they are the elect. And they are chosen And then later on in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, that raises all kinds of questions. What does that mean? And uh, so what I'd like to do, because it's people have a lot of different views about what God's foreknowledge is about. There's lots of different ideas out there about what that word means. I thought it would be helpful for us to look at this phrase, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, and just try to wrap our brains around it and see if we can understand actually what it refers to. When Peter calls his readers the chosen ones or the elect, that particular word is uh, used about 50 times in the New Testament. So it's a very common word to describe the elect or the chosen ones by God. You see it also in 1 Peter 2.9. He uses it again to describe the church as a chosen race. Uh, later on in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, 
He says, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you. So he uses it a third time in 1 Peter. He also uses it twice of Christ as the choice stone, the chosen stone in the temple of God that he's now building. So it's a very important word in the New Testament to describe this concept of God choosing or electing some. Now, the reason why Peter begins this letter describing these Christians as chosen ones is because when you understand who you are in Christ, that we're elect and chosen, you have the mindset to resist the corrupting values of the world around us. You understand that our status is that this is not our ultimate home. We are aliens and strangers, and we're chosen by God to be aliens and strangers. And so we better understand what our lives should be about Because even though we are living in this world, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. His grace has changed us and given us the power to withstand the assault of the world. So that when the world persecutes us or we engage in all kinds of sufferings, we can bear up under it because we're God's chosen pilgrims. And understanding that, helps to lay a foundation for endurance and perseverance in times of trials and difficulties. Now this word for elect or chosen was used of Israel in the Old Testament. We read a verse in our scripture reading. Mike did in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, God didn't choose Israel. Because they were more in number, he didn't choose them for really anything about them. They were, they were just as sinful as everybody else, but God set his love upon them. So it's used of the nation of Israel. God chose them to be a nation that would have special covenants, special privileges. It certainly was not a, a covenant that guaranteed the salvation of all Jews. That certainly hasn't happened, will not happen. But it was used of Israel because he chose them out of all the nations of the earth to give them a covenant, to give them opportunities to see the glory of God more than any of the other nations. Some became believers. Most did not. There was a remnant within the the nation that ultimately came to faith, but most did not. So it was not a, a choosing that guaranteed salvation. It was a choosing that put them in a very special position to have covenants and privileges and see things and have the Word of God, the law of God, the oracles of God that the other nations did not have. So they were in a very privileged position. Still didn't save them all. But this same word is now used of the church who are saved. All of them are saved. And this is a a word that's used now in the New Covenant to refer to Christ's redeemed people. They are the chosen ones. So the meaning now has a uniquely salvific understanding. It's primarily referring to those in the New Testament church. But the fact that this word was used for Israel in the Old Testament, now it's used for the church, connects those two entities. Thomas Schreiner, a professor at Southern Seminary, said, Peter, quote, Peter indicates at the outset, therefore, that the church of Jesus Christ is the Israel of God, his chosen people. So now God's Israel in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, when it's brought into the New Covenant, becomes a spiritually saved people. They are chosen for salvation. So the word used in the New Testament to refer to the church has some unique things about it. Number one, the election or the choosing that we have in verse 1 to describe the church is individual. It's an individual election or choosing and it's unconditional. Now in the Old Testament, God chose the whole people group, the whole nation. But when you bring it into the New Testament, the idea specifically is that God chooses individuals and it's also unconditional. Romans 9.11 says, For though the twins, that is Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, 
so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him He calls. So here in Romans 9, God chose Jacob, not Esau, so it's individual. And it's also unconditional because He didn't choose them on the basis of anything good or bad they had done. They were both in the womb. They, had done, they hadn't done anything good or bad. So it's unconditional. It's individual. Jacob, not Esau, but it's unconditional. He chose Jacob for covenant, grace, and salvation, ultimately not based on anything that Jacob had done. We also know that this election, when it's dealing with salvation, is eternal. We read Ephesians 1.4. He chose us and Him before the foundation of the world. So the choice was not made in time. It was made before time. And God chose us to be in Christ. Now Spurgeon, sometimes Spurgeon says some interesting things. But he said, I'm glad that He chose me before time. If He did it now, He might change His mind. Well, theologically, that doesn't make good sense, but you kind of get the point of it. It's an unconditional, eternal choosing out of all the, the fallen human race, none of which would choose God, none of which wanted to know God, and God chose some to save. So it's individual, it's a choosing, it's an election in verse 1 that is individual, it's unconditional, it's eternal, and it's also unto salvation. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. He didn't choose you because He saw that you were saved. He chose you in order to save you. So it's a a choosing that results in salvation. It's not a choosing because of salvation. So these are some of the unique features in the New Testament that describe salvation. The choosing of, or the elect in verse 1. Now Peter in other places will also say that faith is a gift of God. Um, he says in Second Peter 1.1 that we've received a faith of the same kind. And received a faith, he uses a word interesting in the Greek that means to, uh, from the drawing of lots. So we've received a faith by virtue of the drawing of lots. And people will say, well, then that means it's just totally up to chance and it's random. No, that's not what drawing of lots meant in the Bible. Remember Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the lot was not a something random or happen chance or just luck. The lot they understood in the Bible was controlled by God. So even in Acts chapter 1, when it's time to replace Judas with another apostle, what did the disciples do? They brought forth Joseph, two two, uh, candidates, and then they drew lots. And they say, oh Lord, as we draw lots, you show us whom you have chosen for this position. Because they understood that the drawing of lots was an indication of God's will, not random chance. When they divided up the land in the Old Testament, they drew lots so God could determine which tribe got what land. So when Peter in 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, says that we have received a faith of the same kind as ours, He's, we have received by the drawing of a lot the same faith. He's saying it's a faith given to us by God. God has determined it. So in other places, Peter will even say that repentance is a faith of God several times in the book of Acts. So all this is saying that when he describes him as chosen and elect, in verse 1, it's an individual, unconditional, eternal, unto salvation, election and choosing. And he wanted them to know that up front. You're pilgrims, but God has chosen you to be pilgrims. So God is determining the manner of your life. God has chosen you to be that. Now again, this doctrine is of great encouragement to believers if you believe it. Because if you desire to persevere in in faith which every believer should, particularly in times of trouble. 
You've got to know the hand that holds you. If you think your faith is ultimately up to you, it came from you, it's up to you. You can believe today and stop believing tomorrow. It's up to you. If you believe that you can fall into sin and lose your salvation, then you can't have the security that we should have as God's children. But if you know you're of God's elect, that God chose you from before the foundation of the world, and God will see you through to the end, and you cannot lose that gift of salvation, then it gives a certain confidence and encouragement to persevere in times of difficulty. Because we know the hand that holds us. It's not my hand that holds me. It's God's hand that holds me. So when I'm going through difficult times, I can trust, thank you Lord, though I'm struggling, I've got questions, I don't understand, but Lord, you have me in your hand. And in John 10, Christ says, That we are in His hands and nothing or nobody can take us out of the hands of Christ or the hands of God the Father. There's a security there that comes with this doctrine of election. But Peter goes on in verse 2. We are elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So even though in the Greek the word chosen occurs early in verse 1, Once we get into verse 2, this phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God, modifies the word elect. So this is what Peter's saying. You're chosen or you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now what does the foreknowledge of God mean? Now there's, again, there's two, two different major views. I'm going to describe them as the Arminian view and the Reformed view. The Arminian view is that God in eternity past looked down through the corridors of time and he saw Alan Connor in 1972 put his faith and trust in me for salvation. So he chose me. Therefore, in response, I will choose him. So the way they would interpret it is that we are chosen according to God's foreknowledge that I would first choose him. This is based, uh, the idea is, we we refer to this as conditional election. Not unconditional, but conditional election. That is that God chooses me based on the condition that I first, by my own free will, chose Him. And that is a very popular view of what God's foreknowledge actually means. Um, It's very popular today. The other view is that the foreknowledge of God basically is God's special knowledge of those that He has chosen in covenant love. It's God's special knowledge. In other words, God's foreknowledge is God's sovereign choice and love and knowledge that He places on some. That causes him to choose them. Not based on anything in them. Based upon what's in God. This would be the unconditional election view. This is God chooses some to be saved. Not based on any condition that they perform. And this would be the reformed or the Calvinistic view. So which view is right? Well when you, when you begin to uh, struggle with interpreting scripture. One of the very important things we should do is what's called like a word study. And when you look at the word foreknowledge, it's broken up into two parts. Knowledge and then for. Or, or knowledge beforehand is kind of what, what it's meaning. So when you break that down, you have God's knowledge. So in the Bible, there are two kinds of knowledge that God has. One is His omniscience knowledge. He knows everything. Everything about everything. God knows everything. He has all knowledge. That's one type of God's knowledge. Another type is that God has a special knowledge, a covenant loving knowledge of some that He has chosen. So let me give you a couple of examples of this kind of knowledge. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. 
And I'm going to be going over verses and you can jot them down and study them later on your own. So God has called Jeremiah to be a prophet. This is what he says in chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Well, that can't refer to his omniscience because God knows everybody. But listen to what he says. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I've appointed you as a prophet to the nation. That's before he was born. Before he was even conceived in the womb. God knew him. That God consecrated him, set him apart. That God appointed him to be a prophet. Well, that knowledge is that that very special knowledge and choice that God chose Jeremiah before he was even born, set him apart by his own sovereign decision to be a prophet unto God. So that's a that's a different kind of knowledge. It's not God's omniscience. I know that Jeremiah will be a prophet. It's a special knowledge where God chooses Jeremiah and sets him apart to be a knowledge and to minister, uh, to be a prophet and to minister to God's people. Here's another example of that special covenant knowledge. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God says to Israel, You only have I known among all the families of the earth. You only have I known among all. You mean God didn't know about the Philistines or the Egyptians or the Canaanites? You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Can't mean that. It's referring to that special covenant knowledge. You only have I chosen. You only have I set my love upon by my own sovereign grace. It can't refer to his omniscience. Because then you'd have to end up, you mean God didn't know about all those other... Well, certainly He did. That's His omniscience. But this is different. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. And most, some translations will actually translate it, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Because they know that God's knowledge then really is a synonym for His choosing of them. So, how about when Christ, remember in Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then listen to what Jesus says to these. These are all these people who are claiming to do all these miraculous things in the name of Christ. Matthew seven twenty three. Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. You mean, Christ didn't even know about them? I never knew you? Is He talking about, you mean He, he was devoid? But, no, because He's omniscient. He knows everything. But that's not the, the meaning of the word there. I never knew you. You were never apart with me. I had never placed my love upon you. Your faults in all of your... I never knew you in covenant love. And that's really the only way you can understand that. Christ did not know them in saving knowledge or covenant love knowledge. He didn't. They didn't have that. He didn't know them in that way. So in this sense, God knows some people and not others. And there are other verses that that refer to that. So we have two types of God's knowledge. Omniscience. And then that special covenant loving knowledge of some that He has chosen. Now with that as somewhat of a background, now we look at 1 Peter 1-2. That we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So let's look at the word foreknowledge real quickly. To see if it has the idea of God looking down through the quarters of time. Seeing who first by their free will would choose Him and then He chooses them. And let's see if we can find any support for that idea. Uh, Divine foreknowledge. This word is used five times in the New Testament. So we can quickly survey those. The first one that I want to point your attention to is verse 20 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Look, look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. Here's the same word, only it's the verbal form. And Peter writes, for he, and the context here is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. 
but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So Christ was foreknown. Now does that mean that God looked down through the corridors of time to learn about Christ? And then He knew it ahead of time. No. No. God didn't have to look down through the corridors of time to know His Son. His Son is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He's known His Son from eternity past. He didn't have to look down through the corridors of time to learn anything about His Son because everything that Jesus came to earth to do was already pre-planned and predestined by God. So the idea that God had to look down through time to know His Son Jesus doesn't fit with Scripture anywhere because all of this was, was pre-planned. Besides, notice it doesn't say that he knew certain events about Jesus. He knew his son. He knew Christ. And that refers to that special covenant love that God the Father has with God the Son. They made a covenant in eternity past, a covenant of redemption. And that God the Father knew his son and they worked, they pre planned it together, they agreed together. So the idea of him having to look down through time to know his son just doesn't fit. Okay, another one, real quickly, if you want to look there, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is Peter using the same word again in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And here Peter is talking about Christ and his crucifixion. He says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So Christ was delivered over to Pilate and the Jews to be crucified by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So if foreknowledge means that God had to look down through the quarters of time to learn and to see what that Jesus was going to be crucified, then it totally contradicts what he said right ahead of it. It's by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge. If foreknowledge means looking down through time and learning, oh, my son is going to be crucified, well, then it contradicts the fact that it was predetermined. In other words, there's a, if that view of foreknowledge is put in the, into the verse, it, the verse implodes it contradicts because it's the predetermined plan of God for Christ to go to the cross that was always predestined that was the plan of of God that he would send his son to be crucified on the cross God didn't have to look down through time at all to learn what was going to happen on the cross so you kind of see that the looking down through time just really doesn't make sense it was all God's, the cross was predetermined. Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world in the plan of God. God didn't have to look down through time to learn any about that. It was all according to plan. And Peter then in Acts chapter 4 reasserts that when he says that when they crucified Christ, they did whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So it's not God. God's foreknowledge is not Him looking down through time to see what's going to happen and then respond to it. That is not the way the word is used in the New Testament. Paul would agree. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And again, I, uh, I, I wish our overhead was working. I have the verses up here so it would be easier for you to follow what I'm saying. But in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. For those whom he foreknew. It's not that God foreknew things by looking down through time, but he knew them personally. So it's not his omniscience, or it's not him gaining knowledge by looking down through time. He knew them. Whom he foreknew. Not things about them, but the people that he foreknew. So that fits with that second kind of divine knowledge. His special knowledge of certain people that he's in a covenant love. He's chosen to be in fellowship with him and chosen to save. It fits with that. 
It doesn't fit with the idea of looking down through the ages of history. So Romans 11.2 says exactly the same thing. It refers to God's special knowledge of His chosen people, not of Him looking down through time to learn things about them and then respond and react to that. So in, uh, to wrap this little word study, up, this is how I think First Peter one one uses foreknowledge, that we are the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, that God has placed His saving, electing love, and has known us. He has chosen to know us, and then He chose us because of that that desire to know us. Uh, one other, few, let me real quickly another couple of things. When you look at the Greek lexicons of this word foreknowledge. So we've kind of walked through real quickly how it's used in the New Testament. And it doesn't support the looking down through the ages view of of God's foreknowledge. But also if you go to the standard Greek lexicon or dictionaries, when you read what they say about this word foreknowledge in this verse, they agree with that special electing love idea. For example, Bauer and Gingrich, which is a leading Greek lexicon, says in, in 1 Peter 1 2, the according to God's foreknowledge means according to the predestination of God the Father. So, in other words, here's a Greek leading uh, dictionary that says when you understand foreknowledge in 1 Peter 1 verse 2, understand it as a synonym for predestination. That's the idea. In the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, a great big 10-volume massive work, he says that the word foreknown in these other verses that we looked at, again, refers to God's election or foreordination of His people or of Christ. So it's foreordination or predestination. It's not God looking down through the ages of time to learn something. Even though that's a popular view today. And when you ask people, when they read these verses, they just automatically think, well, God looked down through time, saw who first by the free will would choose Him, then He chose them in response. That is not what the Greek authorities say it means. That's not how it's used in the New Testament. When you look at other Bible translations, you find that when they translate this verse, or the, or the word foreknowledge in these various verses that we've looked at, they will use words like chosen, predestined, foreordained. So again, a lot of the transla- the Bible translations understand that foreknowledge is not the idea of God looking down through time and learning and then responding to that. But it's an idea of God has foreknown them. Like you only of all the families of the earth I have known. It's that I have placed my special knowledge and love and covenant relationship upon you by my grace it's unconditional. I have done it for my own glory and honor. And so foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge is really a synonym for His electing love or His predestination. So in summary, from my study of this word, and I realize this has been kind of a, uh, an involved rabbit trail, but that's an important one. That God's foreknowledge is a synonym for His predestination either of events or of His elect. People that He has set His special love upon. Some, not all. And entered into a loving covenant relationship with Him. That is His foreknowledge of certain people. So, let me stop there and just... Uh, draw some applications as we begin to wrap up this study. That we are the chosen or the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So if it's not God looking down through ages to see who first would choose Him and then He chooses them in response, that's not the right view. But it's rather God has set His love, His covenant love, His electing love upon some to know them, to enter into a a deeper knowledge and intimate knowledge with them through salvation and fellowship. Then this should have a, a very powerful impact upon the lives of God's children. Because it gives us 
number one, a clear understanding of how we should live based upon, again, who we are. And this is how you should understand yourself, assuming you believe that what I've just taught you is accurate. We have been chosen by God for God. You have been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world for God. Not for yourself. Not for the world. But you have been chosen by God for God. And when I begin to understand that, it does impact how I view myself and how I want to live out my life in this world. Because I'm not here for me. I've been chosen by God. Why He chose me, I have no idea. No better, worse than most, no better than anybody else. Why God chooses whom He chooses is a mystery. It's not based upon the way we look, the way we act. It's not based upon any goodness in us because there is none good, no, not one. He doesn't choose us based upon any godliness or any righteousness that comes from us. There is none. There's none righteous, no, not one, not even one. Romans 3. So why did He choose who He chose to save? Well, the closest answer we can get is in Ephesians 1 that we read earlier. To the praise of the glory of His grace. It's not based upon us. It's for the praise of the glory of His grace. That's the answer. And I cannot believe why God would choose me. Because I, don't des- I deserve judgment. I deserve damnation. And yet God in mercy showed His love upon us who know Him in saving faith. And that changes the way I view myself. I didn't just one day decide I'm going to you know, follow Christ. Now I understand that I did that because God worked that in my heart. He changed my heart and enabled me to repent and believe. It's all of God's grace. So again, even though we're in the world, we're not of the world because we are chosen by God for God, which means we have been severed from this world. Set apart for God. So when you're going through your life and you're engaged in conflicts or you've got persecution from the world or just the struggles of life, we always have to remember that this is not our home. We are chosen pilgrims. We're just passing through. Our eternal home is in heaven because God has chosen us for eternity with Him. And that gives me the grace to persevere because I know I'm only here for a little while. And if Christ doesn't come back, then I'm going to die, but I'll be with Him forever. And that's going to be a huge emphasis that Peter will make later on in chapter 1. But to know that you're of God's elect, to know that you're chosen of God, should impact the way we live our life. Colossians 3, if you want to turn there real quick, verse 12 and 13 is a verse to describe how the elect of God should live their lives. Now, this is going to be written to you and me. Colossians 3.12. Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen by God, okay, Christians who live in Colossae, you're chosen by God. As those who have been chosen by God, holy And beloved, God has set us apart. We're holy in Christ. We're beloved in Christ. Now, this is how you need to live your life. As a chosen of God, holy, set apart, beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Kindness. Humility. Gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another. And forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you. So also should you. See this is how the elect should live. This is how the chosen of God should live. That we should put on a heart of compassion and kindness. Humility, gentleness, patience. Bearing with one another. Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against you. Why? Because we've been forgiven. Christ has forgiven me of all of my sins. Show that same grace to others.
this undeserved election and salvation provide the incentive, the motivation, the gratitude to live a God-honoring life now that I know that I have been chosen by God for God. Our destiny is to become like Christ. The elect are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So, O Lord, make me more like Christ. That should be the the heart desire of, of every elect within the body of Christ. So the first application is knowing that you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And God has chosen us for that special knowledge to know us. That we might know Him. That we might know Him throughout all eternity. That now we understand who we are in Christ. And that should have a big impact upon how we live in the midst of this fallen, sin-cursed world. There's another application that comes from this because the doctrine of election should be a great comfort to believers in times of trouble, persecution, suffering, and afflictions because it really is a manifestation of God's overall sovereignty. And you see, God has promised to His elect, His chosen ones, that He will work all things together for good. Everything. The good, the bad, the ugly. He's going to work it all together for good. Now that's a promise He hasn't made to everybody, but He's made it to the elect. He's made it to believers in Jesus Christ. He's going to work all things together for good. So I have that promise as being one of His chosen ones. And so do you. That God has set His eternal love upon us and that nothing that this world throws at us can take us out of God's hands. And it gives stability again to our life. As one of our hymns says, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning on the everlasting arms. So we can know that we're safe and secure because it's our God that has determined to save us. And He's promised He'll never change His mind. So election is a manifestation of God's sovereignty and salvation. Is that God who saved you is also in sovereign control of all the circumstances of your life. And He's promised to use them all for His glory and for your good. John Piper, who, who has some good stuff, some other stuff that may be not as good, but he says that the sovereignty of God is the strong wood of the tree that keeps our lives from being blown over by the winds of adversity. The sovereignty of God is the rock that rises for us out of the flood of uncertainty and confusion. The sovereignty of God is the eye of the hurricane where we stand with God and look up into a blue sky of His mastery when everything is being destroyed. And it's because God is sovereign and has promised to His people that He will work all things together for good that we can have God's peace in the midst of the storm. We can live in the eye of the hurricane because we know that our God who chose us for salvation has promised to work all things together for good. It's all a part of His eternal plan. So as William Cowper or Cooper said in his wonderful hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He says, when you're going through trials and difficulties and you don't understand what's going on in your life, he says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. A lot of God's providences are frowning from our perspective. God, why, why do you hate me? You know, why are you doing this to me? Lord, why is this happening now? Why is it happening in my life at all? And a lot of the trials that we go through are, are what we would describe as frowning providences, but not really. Because for God's chosen, for God's elect, yeah, He may ordain circumstances in your life that are very hard, difficult, troublesome. But behind that is a smiling face. He loves you. He knows you. He's going to work it for good. Spurgeon said there's no attribute more comforting to his people, to his children, God's children, than that of God's sovereignty. 
under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. And that is a confidence that the chosen, the elect have. Because our God has set His loving knowledge upon us. He has drawn us to know Him. And He has chosen us for Himself forever. Well, let me close with one last thought. So we've talked about the doctrine of election being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And some of you here this morning may be wondering, I wonder if I'm of God's elect. I wonder if I'm one of God's chosen ones. And how would you know? Well, the Scriptures tell us that you can know if you're one of God's elect, chosen from before the foundations of the world, individually, unconditionally, eternally, for salvation. If you have come and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to forgive you of your sins. Because if you have done that, you could only do that because God has worked that grace into the heart of His elect, His chosen ones. The natural man cannot do that. Christ says, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. So first, have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone? You're not trusting in church membership. You're not trusting that you walked the aisle when you were a kid or something or as an adult. You're not trusting in your own righteousness, your own good works. None of that stuff can save you. That's like boarding the Titanic. It's going to sink to the bottom of the ocean. It can't save you. It can't float. God's standard is 100% righteousness. And we are all sinners. We've fallen short. When I understand that there's nothing I can do to save myself and I justly deserve the, the wrath of God for my sin, then, oh Jesus, save me. Whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. Lord, I believe in You. I believe that You died on the cross for sinners like me. That You bore my sin. That You suffered the wrath of God. The curse of God. The condemnation of God. And You've promised sinners, all sinners, if they come to You and repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that You'll forgive them. And Lord, I've done that. And You could not have done that apart from being God's elect because before that faith and repentance could ever grip your soul God first must in sovereign grace come to his elect and take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and that's what enables us to put our faith in him in addition to faith in Jesus Christ do you see any evidence in your life that you're born again, that the Spirit of God is within you. Peter made also, Peter is not, he's not the hyper-Calvinist. Again, I've, I've talked about uh, in the, when we talked about that in the book of Acts or, or Paul or any of them. Listen to what Peter says to his readers. The same group of readers, he writes a second letter, 2 Peter 1.10. He says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Be diligent. Make it certain. I mean, we're talking about eternity here. We're talking about heaven and hell. Make certain. Be diligent. Make certain. And then he explains what he's talking about previously. He says, do you see faith? you see moral excellence or knowledge or self-control or perseverance or godliness or brotherly kindness or love? Do you see any of that? Not that you're going to be sinless or perfect, but do you see the grace of God moving you in this direction in any of that? Because a lot of people say they have faith in Jesus Christ, but there's, there's no evidence in their life that they're really born again. So how do you... No, you're of God's elect. Well, do you have faith alone in Christ alone for salvation? And is your faith shown to be alive because by the grace of God, 
there are changes that have that are taking place in your life to conform you more to the image of Christ. Again, it's not the perfection, but it's the direction of the life. We're certainly not saved by moral excellence or knowledge or self-control or perseverance or godliness or any of those things, but it shows the fruit that indicates whether the faith is real. If someone says they have faith, James says, but they have no works, then their faith is dead. They say they have faith. There's no desire to live for Christ. There's no interest in the Bible. There's no, there's no pursuing God at all. There's not, then their faith is dead. It's an empty faith. So Peter says, Brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. And you do it by you see the evidence of the Spirit of God working in your life. So Peter is writing this letter to those who are the elect, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And in the rest of verse 2, that Lord willing we'll see next time, we'll see how that election works out practically in the salvation of sinners. Kind of an interesting study for the rest of verse 2. But these are the things that Peter wants his readers to know. That they are chosen by God. And because you're chosen by God, it should impact the way you live and also give you a firm foundation for bearing up under the assaults of the world when you realize that you're chosen, you're elect by Almighty God. And He has set His loving knowledge upon you forever. And this should change the way we live. And may God make that so. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we do uh, thank You, Lord, that we can grapple with the language of Scripture. And we know, Lord, that there are many different ideas about how to interpret these things. But Father, believing them to be true, I just want to thank You, Lord, that from before the foundation of the world, You have chosen each and every believer here that has a genuine faith in Christ to be Your elect chosen people of God that we have been called out of this world to be your children so Lord help us to live that way help us to live our life for the glory of the God who loved us when we were unlovable who forgave us when we were totally guilty who changed our hearts when we could not change them ourselves and gave us faith that we might come to know you and your love and your mercy and your grace in a more powerful way. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that has been wrestling with the question of whether they are of God's elect or not, Lord, convict them of their sin. They must repent. They are responsible to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Help them, O God, but convict them. Show them. Open their eyes to see Jesus Christ, to repent and believe in Him. Lord, do that for them, we pray. Thank You, Lord, for this time. We give You praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.